Today's verse is Matthew 16, 13 through 28. In the Pew Bible, it will be page 822. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the, who he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is come, going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God. Good morning again, church. Before we begin, let me just share, since we have everyone here, that these beautiful flowers today are in honor of Dan and Beth Ann Puckett for their 50th wedding anniversary. Congratulations, Dan and Beth Ann. Some things are just worth celebrating in 50 years. That is worth celebrating. We are so thankful for the Puckett family, for Dan and Beth Ann, and their partnership with our church family. Today is a big day. We kick off a week of Grace Gives. Uh, if you don't know what that is, that is a week where our church sets aside, where we focus all of our efforts, all of our time, all of our resources in saturating this community with the gospel through sharing and serving. In word and in deed, we, it, we want to do everything we can to make the gospel known, to make Jesus known in this community. It's one of my favorite weeks of the year because we get to see God work as we step out in dependence and in faith on Him. Before we get into the text, let me just give a, another quick update. Uh, this past week, Danny Beth and I uh, had the privilege to travel to Charleston, West Virginia, uh, where we attended a messenger meeting of the American Baptist Association. It's an association of churches that partner together to, together to do missions 
and church planting. Uh, as many of you know, we, we give th- tens of thousands of dollars to the ABA to help plant churches and to support missionaries. And I got to see several of our, our supported missionaries, uh, Glenn and Summer Knight, uh, who are with uh, Remote Island Ministries out in Micronesia and uh, got to catch up with them. Russell Knight, who's planting a church in northwest Arkansas. Uh, and it was super encouraging to sit down with fellow pastors and missionaries and to hear their stories. We actually have one of the pastors here, Scott, and his wife, Becky Peefhouse, from South Lakewood Baptist Church. They drove from Charleston all the way to Bowie here because they wanted to be with us. So thank you for being here, uh, Scott. Uh, they're, they're hanging out in D.C., enjoying the sights. A couple of numbers that stood out to me, through the 155 church planters and missionaries supported to the ABA, this past year, uh, they were able to share that 937 people got baptized after a profession of faith, and they were able to establish 39 new churches in this last year. So praise God. We should celebrate this. We get to be a part of God's mission around the world. And now, this week, we get to be a part of God's exciting mission here in our own community. We have been in the series, and we wrap up the series this week called Pictures of Disciple Making, where we're looking at uh, different images or pictures that Jesus gives us of what it looks like to make disciples. You know, fishers of men, and being yoked to Jesus, and scattering seed of the gospel. Uh, And so we've been looking, what does Jesus say? How does he teach us? how to make disciples and be on mission for him. Today, the image is one that is maybe the hardest for us to to wrestle with, but a very important one. Take up your cross and follow me. What we're going to see in our text today is that often our expectations don't always match our reality. What we expect to happen in life, how we expect life to go, doesn't always match with how life circumstances go, how life turns out. And when that happens, it can be disappointing and frustrating. Have you ever had an expectation of how you thought life should go and then it turned out differently than you expected? I remember one time, Danny Beth and I were dating and uh, I was still, we were still both in college and we we had this mutual friend who lived uh, in the summers. He went to Ocean City and spent the summers there working, and he, he made that money and had fun in Ocean City. And so he gave us this open invitation, and he said to us, listen, come down. There's plenty of room in the place I'm staying. It's a beautiful place. Come down, hang out with us a few days a week, however long you want. It's an open invitation. And so we, we're poor, poor students in college. We're like, maybe we should. This is a great way to get to Ocean City. And so we said, all right, let's do it. We're going to drive down. We called him up. Can we come down? Absolutely. I'll make room for both of you in the place. All right, come on down. So we pack up our stuff. We drive to Ocean City. Now, I grew up going to Ocean City. I love Ocean City. Danny Beth had been maybe a few times. And so I couldn't wait to kind of show her this town that I love so much. And we pull into this community that my friend was staying in. And he told us it was this beautiful trailer park that most of them were on the water. And we start pulling up to his home. And we didn't have, I didn't have a phone, right? Didn't have MapQuest back back then. We just had printed directions, right? It was kind of archaic. Like, what's next? What's next? Um, Some of you are like, that's what I grew up with. So we get there and, and and we pull up. And we pull up to this home. And it's this brand new double wide trailer. A beautiful roof, new exterior, windows are brand new, this beautiful deck on the back overlooking the water, the landscaping was pristine, I mean the colors were glorious, and we pull up and I'm thinking, this is incredible. 
He was right. What a beautiful place. And I look at Danny Beth and she's like, wow, we get to stay here for free with our friend. And we're so excited. She starts getting out of the car and look at the address just to make sure one last time. And I had one of the numbers wrong. And it didn't match the house. And so I, I, I got panicked and I said, Danny Beth, I, I think this is the wrong house. Um, so I got in the car and I, I looked at the actual address and I, I started to pull the car up until I, until I saw the house with the right address. To our complete shock, the trailer was completely dilapidated. There was rust all over the outside. There was a window AC unit that had fallen out of the window. The deck was broken. I mean, literally, we thought it was a condemned building. And I almost drove away. I almost thought, you know what? This is not going to work out. And my friend burst out of the front door. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> our expectations did not match our reality. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe it was something more serious, like a job that you thought was going to be amazing and didn't turn out the way you planned. A house that you thought was going to be this awesome house and then it turned out to have so many things wrong with it. Maybe marriage. You got into marriage thinking it's going to be one way and it turns out to be another. Paul David Tripp wrote a book, What Did You Expect? Talking about marriage. What about kids? What about retirement? Maybe you thought retirement was going to look a certain way and then it looked differently because of an unexpected event. Maybe it's true for your relationship with Jesus. Sometimes we expect that if we follow Jesus, life will be easier, life will be better, there'll be incredible blessings and maybe no hardships. And maybe you did experience some of the blessings of following the Lord, knowing the Lord, but then life got hard, trials came, and you started to wonder, is this what it's supposed to be like? You see, so often in life, our expectations don't match reality. Jesus will show us today that, if, that we do need to let go of our expectations of following him, what we think it's going to look like, and let him shape our view of what it, is look, what it looks like to be a disciple, to be a follower of Jesus. And it may be harder than you and I ever expected, but maybe, maybe even in the giving up of our dreams and our desires, we will actually gain infinitely more than anything we might give up. Let's look at this text in Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Well, four lessons this morning. Lesson number one, a, di a disciple confesses Jesus as the Christ. What does it look like to be a disciple and to make disciples? Number one, a disciple confesses Jesus as the Christ. We pick up the story with Jesus and his disciples in Caesarea Philippi, it says. This is a city that's on a hill overlooking the Jordan Valley. And there's this huge rock wall where Roman, the Romans had built many temples, temple upon temple, and, and they were all in honor of the various Roman gods. The greatest of the gods there, the god of nature, Pan. 
In fact, Herod the Great had built a massive temple in honor of Caesar. That's why it's called Caesarea Philippi, named after Caesar. And he built this huge temple in Caesarea Philippi, and it had this inscription that Caesar himself had said, and the inscription said this about Caesar, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. And Jesus is walking through this city, overlooking all these temples, all these gods. And he turns to his disciples and he asks them, who do people say that I am? You see all these other gods, you see what people say about them. What are people saying about me? Remember the the religious leaders were slandering Jesus. They were saying all kinds of manner of evil against him. The people of his own hometown had, had, took, had taken offense at him. His own family members did as well. But many people witnessed the miracles. They heard him preach with God-given authority, and they realized something is unique about him. And so the disciples said, you know what? Word on the street is, you're one of the prophets. You're Jeremiah, come back. You're, you're Elijah. Maybe you're John the Baptist, come back from the dead. These are all prophets. And Jesus doesn't even, doesn't even entertain those, doesn't even engage in those. He asks them simply, who do people say that I am? Because he's getting to a more important question. Now, who do you say that I am? This is the most important question of the disciples' lives. This is the, the, the hinge moment in the gospel of Matthew. It has all been building up to this. This is the exact center of Matthew's gospel. Everything leading up to it has been leading up to this moment. Everything on the other side is going to go lead him to the cross. This is the hinge moment. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, the spokesman, as is often the case in verse 16, says, Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ the Son of the living God. Christ, the Jewish word Messiah, it means Messiah or anointed one, chosen one. In the Old Testament, the one who was anointed, the one who was was considered, uh, that that had this term used for them, would have been a king because they would anoint kings with oil at their coronation. They were the anointed one, the special one, the chosen one. But there was this idea in the Old Testament of a Messiah, of a king who would come, a hero who would come. And Jesus is God's king, God's hero, who had come to put everything right in the world. The disciples watched Jesus speak and act and live, and they examined the evidence, and they concluded Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament has been prophesying, that we've been longing for. Peter says, Jesus, you're the, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. You see, they were standing in front of stone, dozens of gods carved out of stone. They're not alive. But the God of Israel, Peter is proclaiming and confessing, the God of Israel, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and and earth, this God is alive. And now this living God is standing in front of them in the person of his son, Jesus. Peter's saying, you are God's king, Jesus. 
You are the hero we've been waiting for. At some point, every one of us needs to be able to answer the same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? He cannot be just a prophet. So many in our world respect Jesus, appreciate Jesus, and they think he's just like every other religious leader. He's one of the prophets. He teaches people how to live a good life. The problem is, as you actually read the words of Jesus and study his life, he never claims to be just a prophet. He claims to be much more than a prophet. He'll claim to be God in the flesh. Muhammad never claimed to be God in the flesh. Buddha never claimed to be God in the flesh. They claimed to point to people to the way, to Muhammad, point people to Allah. Jesus comes and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am who I am. And they pick up stones because they realize what he just said. Do you believe this morning do you believe, I'm talking to you personally, not the person next to you, not your kids, not your friends. Do you believe Jesus is the Christ? The chosen one of God who became your substitute for sin and died on a, on a cross in your place and then rose from the dead to defeat sin and death and give you new life, eternal life. Do you believe that? You see, if you do, like Jesus says to Peter, blessed are you. Because even the faith it takes to believe that was given to you as a gift. You see what Jesus says to Peter? He said, you couldn't come up with that yourself. You've been with me. You've seen it. You know. You've witnessed it. But at the end of the day, Peter, it takes God the Father opening your heart to see me for who I am and to embrace me as the Christ, the Savior. Now, here's the thing. Jesus gave his disciples time to gradually come to the conclusion about his identity. Notice Jesus doesn't start day one. Remember weeks ago, Jesus called his disciples, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. Remember that at the very beginning. Does Jesus from day one say, now, who do you say that I am? No. He says, just follow me, learn from me, watch me, stick close to me. He doesn't force this upon them right away. And here's the point. Neither should we with the people we're seeking to reach with the gospel. This week, we are all going to go out. And, and, I, and in general, most of us, we need, no, we need a nudge to be more bold, more courageous, more forthright with the gospel. And that's why we have a series like this, to, to kind of nudge you out of your comfort zone. There, there are times where you are called to speak the words of the gospel and not just show it. And so for, in general, most of us need that encouragement. But listen, people need time to decide. There are some people right here this morning who I know are wrestling with the claims of Christianity, are wanting to learn and understand, and they're not there yet. And that's okay. We're glad you're here. Keep coming. But at some point, a person needs to decide, who is Jesus? Who is he? Becoming a Christian, a disciple, begins with a confession that Jesus really is the Christ. Lesson number two. A disciple has a growing confidence that Jesus will build his church through us. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. 
And on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's a play on words here when he says, you are Peter and on this rock. So here's Jesus standing in front of this big rock in Caesarea Philippi and he's saying in contrast to all these pagan temples carved out of rock, Peter which in Greek is the word Petra, which means rock. On this rock, I will build my church. Now, here's a little theological controversy that, uh, that pastors and scholars wrestle with. Is Jesus referring to Peter as the rock? Or is he referring to the confession of Peter as the rock upon which he's going to build his church? This, you think, well, that's, what's the big deal here? This, this controversy literally splits the, the, the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's huge. And so I don't have time to break it all down. And, and maybe some of you won't like what I'm going to say, but without getting into many of the details, here's what I think. I think it's both end. I think the confessing Peter will be the rock on which Jesus will build his church. We already know Ephesians 2.20, Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church, Right? But Ephesians 2.20 says that the apostles and prophets are part of the foundation on which the church will be built. And yet it is this confession, Jesus, you are the Christ. It is that confession that Jesus will build his church because that's what makes you a part of the, the church of God, the family of God, by professing Jesus Christ as Lord. Notice what Jesus says to him. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus leaves no room for doubt. This is his church, not ours. If you ever get discouraged about the state of the church here or around the world, if you ever wonder why everything seems to be stacked against us, remember this morning, church, Jesus has declared, I will build my church. The church isn't some afterthought of Jesus. It's not his plan B. It is his plan A. The church is Jesus' mission, period. And if the Son of God was willing to be ripped open and crucified in order to rescue his church, you can be sure he will see that rescue mission through. He will finish what he started. What about persecution? Nothing can thwart God's mission for his church. What about disunity in churches and infighting? Nothing can thwart God's mission for his church. What about if the government passes laws to restrict freedom and, 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 and function of churches? Nothing can thwart God's mission for his church. Do you hear me? More importantly, do you hear him? Not even the power of hell and Satan himself can overcome or defeat God's church. This is good news, church. This ought to give us great confidence this morning for a week that I've had being with other pastors. And honestly, I heard some really challenging things. I thought I was alone in all the mess and all the junk that I've been dealing with, all the pain, all the beaten up and all the, the criticism. And I'm talking to pastors and I feel like they're in my head. They're saying the exact same things. That I, like we're all going through the same things. And, I, and I was, I'm studying this passage and I have to remind it, oh man, Jesus, you're going to build your church. I'm a nobody. Just trying to tell everybody about somebody. Sorry. 
I don't know. What an incredible privilege. Jesus wants to use you to build his church. Do you believe that? Listen, if you got a call from the president tomorrow, and he said, listen, I need you to do a special project for me to lead a special agency. Your nation needs you today. You might be like, oh, I wouldn't talk. No, listen, if the president calls you, to answer. And it's probably hard to say no to a president. And that's just a man with earthly authority. This is the king of the universe who has all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has invited you and me to join him in this adventure. Do you have a growing confidence this morning that God will build his church through us? This church? Are you confident? And is that confidence reflected in your commitment to this local church? You say, yeah, I'm confident Jesus is going to build his church, but then the church is kind of an afterthought to you. No, that's not how it works. Is it reflected in your priorities that this confidence is on Jesus building his church? Lesson three. A disciple humbly recognizes that you don't get to align Jesus to your priorities. He aligns you to his. Notice after this incredible profession, Jesus, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus, blessed are you, Simon. I'm going to build my church on this profession. You and the apostles, did you go out and, and, and write the New Testament and, and, and share my words inspired by the Holy Spirit? I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there's an authority that he sends the church out with. And then verse 20, he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. What? Why not? This is the greatest news ever. The Messiah had come. Why shouldn't they tell everyone right away? Here's why. Because they were totally, they were totally ignorant of the implications. They would have gone out with this triumphant, politically charged message about Jesus being a conquering king just like they read so many times in the Old Testament. And they would have gone out, here's the Messiah, he's, he's going to overthrow Rome. Ha, Caesar, you think you're hot stuff? We got the Messiah, the Christ here, just you wait. And they had no idea he did not come first to be the conquering king, he came first to be the suffering servant. Totally ignorant of these implications. And he needed to train them. And that's why in verse 21, he says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. The word must there is incredibly important. That word means divine necessity. It indicates Jesus was not merely predicting his death, he is planning it. This is the very will of God for Jesus to go and suffer and be shamed and, 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 and stand and lay upon a cross and die. And this is what offends Peter so much because it's totally, totally inexplicable to him. 
The Messiah was supposed to come and, and conquer evil and destroy injustice and make everything right in the world. And here's Jesus talking not about anything like that. Instead, he's talking about suffering and dying. Jesus is not just altering their understanding of the Messiah. He is redefining it beyond their recognition. Please get that. It was hearing this news that Jesus was going to suffer and die that caused Peter to immediately take Jesus aside and it says, rebuke him. He doesn't ask for clarification. He's not like, hey, Jesus, I thought I heard you said, but I, I must have been mistaken and I doze off sometimes, so sorry, please forgive me. Can you please say it again? The word is rebuke. It's the same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes demons. Peter is condemning Jesus in the strongest way. Talk about a spiritual high followed by a spiritual low. Any of you experienced that? Any of you been, been like on the mountaintop and you're like, I can conquer the world! And then the next day you're like, boom, right on your face. Like, what happened? I thought I was invincible. That's Peter. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1, 20, 23 that the cross is a stumbling block and Peter is the first to stumble over the offense of the cross. In fact, when Jesus says in verse 23, for you're not setting your mind on the things, oh, sorry, get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance. The word literally is a stumbling block. Listen, the cross is offensive to everybody. The cross is why so many people reject Christianity. We love Jesus wanting to, 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 to show us his great love. We love someone who says, love your enemies. People, we eat that up. But we cannot understand how Jesus could say he must die on a cross and that we deserve that cross. But you cannot understand the significance of the cross unless you first feel the offense of the cross. The cross is offensive because it means that every one of us is so messed up, so full of evil, we need God himself to die for us. I get it. If you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, what is all this talk about? The cross and sin and all this stuff. Listen, I had to deal with the offense of the cross myself. When I was a kid and I stole that pack of gum from the local grocery store and I walked out and I thought my dad didn't see it and he, and he calls me out, I felt like terrible. I'm like, oh, I'm the, but I did not feel like it was worthy of Jesus dying on the cross. It needed to sink in that I wasn't just breaking a law. I was committing, committing cosmic treason against a holy God. The cross is offensive because it says to those of us who have worked so hard to not be like those people who have made a mess of their lives, it's offensive because it tells us we're just as morally corrupt. The cross means that no matter how good you think you are, we are all needing to be saved from the penalty of sin in the same way. Peter is opposing the very plan of God and therefore without knowing it, he has lined himself up with the plan of Satan. And that's what Jesus says in verse 23. After being rebuked by Peter, Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. 
for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Those are pretty harsh words. Get behind me, Satan. When we think in human terms and mindsets that directly conflict with the things of God, the Word of God, we are no longer aligning ourselves with Jesus, but Satan. You see, Peter couldn't fathom Jesus as the Messiah having to be humiliated and tortured and killed. That didn't match his understanding of a victorious, conquering Messiah. Even the scholars and all the religious leaders had not matched up the suffering servant with the conquering Messiah. This is still Satan's greatest temptation today to reshape Jesus according to our own expectations. Please listen to me. We are all in danger where none of us are immune to the temptation to reshape Jesus according to our priorities and our expectations. Listen, we live in a culture that is swimming in consumerism and it is obsessed with expressive individualism. In other words, we want an Americanized version of Jesus. We want a Jesus who is one part therapist, who helps us feel good about ourselves no matter how we live, and one part financial guru who wants to help us, him to help us prosper, and one part genie who makes all of our dreams come true. Listen, if Jesus can do all that, yeah, I want him, right? Who wouldn't want that? But sadly, that's a satanic distortion of Jesus. And none of us are immune from it. We don't get to align Jesus to our priorities. We must align ourselves to his. Which means you need to be ready, and I need to be ready, for Jesus to contradict you, and to challenge you, and to change you. Are you ready for that? Are you, are you inviting? Are you humbly willing to let Jesus challenge what you think and what, how you feel and how you live? Are you willing to let him contradict you? You and I don't get to go to Jesus and say, here's what I think, I, here's how, here's what I think about my sexuality, Jesus, and I want you to be okay with that. Jesus says, that's not your call to make, it's mine. We don't get to say, Jesus, here's what I should be able to do with my money and my time. Jesus says, no, actually, that's my call, not yours. Here's, what I should, here's how I should be able to speak to anybody I want to, whether on, on social media or in person, because I should be able to speak however I want. And Jesus says, actually, no, your words need to come from me, not you. That's being a disciple. You follow him. He doesn't follow you. We sh you say, this feels weighty, Mark. Can't you speak on something happier? I mean, I want to speak on the Bible, so I, I just, this is what Jesus says. But then here's what Jesus says. He doesn't just leave that. He doesn't just leave it. Get behind me, Satan. Let's go, guys. No, that would be like horrible. Peter's saying, I'm sorry, leave you there. No, he says, no, 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 no. And he, look at verse 24. Then he told all of his disciples. He gathers them all up and realizes, listen, Peter's just a spokesman. Whatever he's thinking and feeling, I know you're all probably thinking it. Let me tell you what it looks like to follow me. A disciple takes up a cross to follow Jesus. So after Peter's failure, Jesus take, turns all his disciples and says, let me give you a picture 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He says, I am a king. I am the Christ. He does not deny what Peter says. He affirms it. I am the Messiah. I am the king. But I'm a king who's going to end up on a cross. And if you want to follow me, you must take up your own cross as well. Notice the call. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. All basically three ways of saying the same thing. Deny yourself. Let's be honest. We're not good at doing this. Let's just be honest with ourselves. Everything around us teaches us to do just the opposite, right? If you get a drink, Sprite, obey your thirst, right? Do whatever you want. Burger King, at least in the past, have it your way. However you want to have it. Nike, just do it, right? Don't you think these messages have an impact on us? Deny yourself. No, there is no company that's worth their weight in salt that will ever say that. Because it, it means losing your privileges, your status, your rights, your plans, your dreams, your desires. It's the antithesis of everything we're taught. And then you come here to church and you're like, why does it feel so hard? Maybe it's because everything we've been listening to has been over here. And here I am just trying to tell you what God says. And you're like, whoa, it feels like you're way over here. No, I'm simply over here. That's all I'm doing. All right. Sorry. Jesus says your focus on self will have to go. Jesus, God refuses to take a minor role in your life. He demands to be in control. He says, deny yourself, then take up your cross. The image of cross-bearing would have been shocking to them. Right? We put a cross up. We put it on our necklace. And yet the cross displays the horrific way, the most horrific and torturous way that Romans punished the worst of criminals. The cross was an instrument of brutality and cruelty and shame. A criminal would not only be crucified, but he would have to carry his own cross publicly for all to see. And the crowd would watch in horror and think, Hall, oh, you are the worst of the worst! And Jesus says, I've told you about fishing for men. I've told you about being yoked to me. I've told you about a, a shepherd going, looking for sheep and, and, a, and a lady looking for coins. And these are pictures of discipleship. But let me now tell you the pinnacle picture, the ultimate picture of what it's going to look like to follow me, to be committed to me. Take up your cross means you, you no longer, you're no longer your own. That's what the cross meant. You, you don't, your, your life has been, is done. You don't call the shots. You're in total submission. Listen, salvation is free. Praise God. He gives us a gift of, of eternal life for free, and it doesn't cost us anything to receive it. But listen, following Jesus will cost you something. Maybe everything. And I've talked to enough missionaries on the field, and some who've been and come back and are going back out to know there's a cost. I've talked to enough of you to know that following Jesus has a cost. There are some of you who are in your jobs right now, you have been attacked because you're a Christian. I know because you've told me, and the church should know that. Take up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. Follow me. What does that mean? 
He says, if anyone would come after me, the word after me, it, it, it's really, it, he's, he's saying literally, this is what it looks like. Stick close to me. Discipleship is following behind me. Right? If, I, if, my, if my youngest son is with me, he's, just, he's really close to me. He doesn't want to walk way far behind me. He doesn't want to be over here. He always wants to be right next to me. Sometimes I'm like, you're a little too close, right? But he just wants to be right here. And I realize, like, he's just following me. He wants to be with me. He wants to stick close to me. Jesus says, that's you. That's me. Stick close to me. So close that it might feel like you're annoying me, but it's not. I love it. As close as you can get. How do we follow Jesus? And we, I can get into specific things possibly for you, but here's the surest thing I know what it means to follow Jesus. The clearest way to follow Jesus is to listen to his words. Please write that down. I'm gonna, at the end, I might offer a couple ways that you can practically do that, but I don't know in your life, but here's what I do know. The will for your life to follow Jesus is to stick closely to his words. Because he says in the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. What does that look like? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. That's what a disciple is and does. Teaching them to observe, to listen and obey all that he has commanded. Listen to the words of Jesus. Seek to be shaped by them, to live by them, by his grace. Can you see why some people, after hearing this, in the Gospel of John, at one point Jesus preaches a hard message and literally the crowd literally leaves. They're like, no thanks. We don't sign up. We rescind our names. And you see even why today there's some people who even attend church regularly but don't actually want to make a commitment to Jesus because it demands you go all in. So why should we consider it then? Why should I consider submitting to these demands, to this call? Why should any of us do this? Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't just give us the command. He gives us the grace, the hope, the encouragement to, to do it. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you seek to save your life, Jesus says, you will lose it. What is Jesus doing here? He's appealing to the most basic human desire. We want to live. Preserving your life, preserving one's life is at the core of the human heart. It's wired, hardwired into us. We want to live. And Jesus knows that. And he says, do you want to live? Uh, of course I want to live. What can I do to preserve my life, Jesus? Die. Um, I'm sorry, I thought I just said I want to live, and I thought you just said die. And Jesus says, yep, that's right. This is the paradox of Christianity, that the way of the cross is the way of life. It is gaining by losing. It's the upside-down nature of the kingdom. Jesus says, bring me your weakness and I'll show you my strength. Jesus says, you can come poor in spirit and you'll be rich in the kingdom. Jesus says, come broken and I mend and make new. Jesus says, come and die and I will help, help you let you truly live. 
And we think it's the opposite because the mantra of our culture and just the things even in our own hearts is that in order to experience real life and joy, you got to be true to yourself. Right? We, we're, we're taught by everything around us, break off the shackles of religion and break off the shackles of parental rules and be yourself, whoever you want to be. You know the problem with that? The problem is that kind of pressure to self-identify is crushing. You can never find your true identity by trying to find your true identity. Listen, we just don't have what it takes in us. And if, you are, if you're like, well, help me understand that better, let's talk afterwards. You and I don't have what it takes to figure out what is my true identity. We need it spoken over us. We need the God who created us and knows us better than ourselves to give us an identity. That's why Jesus never says, be true to yourself. You know what he says? Be true to me. Be true to me. That's where life and joy are found. And that's scary because it means we don't know what he'll call us to sacrifice or where he'll call us to go, but we can trust the one to whom we follow. Listen, even if you could have your dream life today, right? Jesus is going to get the next verse. He says, what shall a man give in return for a soul? What will it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? I think Jesus is saying something like this. If you can write today, go home and write, this is what my dream life would be. I want to be accepted by everybody. I want, to, I want to have the best job. I want to be satisfied in my work. I want to have this beautiful family. I want to have money to be able to do whatever I can do. I want to have comfort and wealth and worth and dignity and all the things. But if you had all those things, but I had to lose your soul, would it be worth it? And Jesus says, no, not even close. Because what can compare to the value of a human soul? Nothing. It's infinitely valuable in God's eyes. The reason Jesus went to the cross to suffer and die for you is to rescue your soul from being lost forever. That's how valuable your soul is to him. Jesus invites you to truly believe that giving up all that this world has to offer and trading it in for a cross is the greatest deal ever. And it is because what Jesus offers you is not wealth or reputation or status. He offers you life. You don't see anything on, uh, out there advertising life because they know there's limits to what they can say. Jesus offers us life and identity not based on your performance but on his. An identity not defined by your life but by his. And when you take up your cross and follow Jesus, he speaks a new identity over you. When you become a disciple, he says, listen, from now on, from this point forward, and it will never change ever, you and you and you and you are my adopted sons and daughters. You're part of my family. And that means, come hell or high water, I will never leave you. You have my unfailing presence now. And in the future, no more sin, no more suffering, freedom from shame and guilt and death itself. And one day we will have unspeakable joy, everlasting and ever-increasing joy in a new heavens and a new earth with Jesus himself. That's what you gain by being willing to give your life for Jesus and give your life to Jesus.
And he even says, I'm coming back to the word in the ESV says to repage person. That's not a great word. It's to reward. He's coming back to reward us. In other words, nothing you do in the name of Jesus is wasted. Please hear me, Christian. Whether you're working at home with your kids or you're in a job that's hard or you're in a, a, a situation in your neighborhood that's difficult, I don't know what you're going through. Here's what I know. Nothing you do in the name of Jesus is ever going to be wasted. It can't be. How can we trust that if we put our lives in the hands of, of Jesus, that he'll make good on his promise? of rescuing our soul, of giving us life. How can we be sure? You say, Mark, I need assurance. I need something to, to hold on to, something tangible. Okay, here's the most tangible thing Jesus can give us. How can we be sure we can trust him? Not because of our cross, but because of his. Do you see why he gives us the image of a cross? Because he wants it seared into our heads and our minds, our hearts as disciples, that as disciples, that as they move towards his own cross and as they saw him on the cross, when, when you let the gospel penetrate your, your heart and your soul, the good news that Jesus is the Christ, God's king, and he came to earth as a man not to sit on a throne but to suffer on a cross. That he gave up his identity so that you could have one. And he did all this because he loves you. When you let that sink in and believe it, everything begins to change. You will gladly take up a cross to follow your king because you realize your cross will never compare to his. That's the, that's the most important cross. You say, well, I, I struggle to, to take up my cross. Okay, that's fine. But guess what? The good news is he never did. I failed Jesus. I've, I have turned away. I don't want, I've struggled in my commitment. Okay, but guess what? The good news today is Jesus never did. That's the most important message today. Your cross-bearing is only because of his cross-bearing. And your cross-bearing will never compare to his cross-bearing. And that's good news. That's really good news. That's why we do Grace Gives. We want every person in this community not to be like, oh, Grace Baptist Church is great, or oh, this is great. No, we want everybody to be like, wow, Jesus is amazing. Why do you wash cars? Why did this guy, wait, you're a GS so-and-so from the government? Yeah, you, 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 you send reports that go to the president or the DOD? Yeah, and you're washing my wheels? Yeah, why? Because Jesus is amazing. Because he is so good. Because he's given us a life far greater than anything this world could ever offer. What it will, here's my last question as we close. What would it look like for you to take up your cross and follow him? For some of you, maybe you do need to trust Christ today. Maybe you need to say, I want to profess Jesus as the Christ. Turn from my sin and embrace Jesus as Savior, the one who died for me and rose again. I want to receive him as a gift by faith alone. You can receive that right now. Right now, you can become a child of God. You don't need a prayer, special prayer. You just need to invite him into your life. Could it mean for some of you that you change your career plans to serve Jesus in full-time vocational ministry? Could it, mean you, could it mean you sacrifice your dreams for retirement, whatever you think that should look like, in order to serve the Lord more fully here around the world? Could it mean you continue in your current job 
but you seek to be a faithful witness for Christ as you, as you witness in your workplace and as you give generously to fuel the kingdom of God. I don't know. Could it mean forgiving a person that you've struggled to forgive? Could it mean walking across the street to talk to a neighbor? Could it mean serving one day or all week this week for Grace Gives? Could it mean getting up tomorrow and discipling those children knowing that your work is never in vain? What does it look like? Jim Elliott, the missionary who died trying to reach Ecuador with the gospel, later his wife and others came in and the very people who killed him came to faith in Christ. And Jim Elliott, years before he left, is almost like, like, like he was a prophet of sorts, he said this statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let that sink in. He is no, she is no fool who gives what you cannot keep to gain what you cannot lose. Imagine what God can do in our community and around the world if a, a church like this of hundreds of committed Christ followers would say the same thing. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we come to you and we say like the disciples when, when the crowds left you and you looked at them and said, will you also leave? Jesus, we say to you today, where else could we go? For you alone have the words of life. Where else could we go, Lord? Who else could rescue our souls? Who else could give us unfailing love now and unspeakable joy to come? But Lord, the, the teaching is hard. The paradox of the gospel is hard. That we would have to come and die in order to live. Jesus, I pray that your, the Father in heaven would open our eyes, everyone here, that we might be able to say this and believe this and live it. That to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help us to take up our cross. Whatever that looks like, I don't know. But I know it means sticking close to your word. Listening and obeying your word. Together in community. God, we want to see this community transformed. We want to see you do things we could never have planned. And you've shown us time and time again in the past, Lord, that our best efforts at planning grace gives pale in comparison for the planning that you put into it and the ways that you're going to work through it. And so, Lord, we just want to step out of the way and do what you've called us to do and say, God, do whatever you want to do. This is your story. And this is your church. And we are your people. We bow before you in glad submission because you are the Lord of this church and we delight to follow you. Come what may, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.